Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 58. This week, my thanks goes out to Keith from Colorado Springs for his donation. Since I am in full-blown 1916 research mode, I can tell you that part of your donation went to a copy of The Romanian Battlefront in World War I, which will be used extensively in several episodes in the coming months. This episode, and the next episode as well, we are going to cover the topic of submarines. Submarines, or U-boats as the Germans referred to them, played a large role during the First World War, a role that is often overshadowed by the more popular and more well-known effects that the German U-boats would have a generation later in the Battle of the Atlantic. We have already spent some time discussing the impact of U-boats, way back in episode 35, when we discussed the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania that resulted in such uproar from the United States of America. This episode, we will look at the technical and strategic innovations in both submarines and submarine countermeasures before the start of the war and during its first year. We will also look at how Germany planned on using their fleet of subs and how they actually ended up using them, which were two very different things. Next episode, we will focus strictly on the evolution of submarine warfare at sea, as it morphed from targeting strictly military vessels to targeting civilian vessels in accordance with international rules, and then finally the big changeover to unrestricted warfare, and all of that happened in the first five months of the war. In his book, U-Boat War 1914-1918, which was used extensively throughout both of these episodes, Edwin Gray would have this to say about the effect of the German submarines during the war. Quote, The U-boat brought Imperial Germany to the threshold of victory. It was a murderous campaign that destroyed 11 million tons of Allied merchant shipping. It was a conflict that cost the lives of 515 officers and 4,894 men of the U-boat service. It was, for both sides, the killing time. End quote. I believe that Gray is exaggerating the overall effects of the U-boat campaign in terms of overall influence. I don't think it almost brought Germany to the threshold of victory. But even if its effects of the U-boats in strictly military and economic terms is often greatly inflated, the psychological effects of the campaign cannot be overstated. Before we get into the war proper, I'm going to spend just a bit of time looking at what submarines looked like in the years leading up to the war. The submarine was not really new in 1914. It had been around for a long time. But this would be the first time that they see widespread use in a large conflict. Much of the history of submarine warfare is dedicated to talking about U-boats. But the British were heavily invested in them as well. In 1910, there were over 50 submarines in the Royal Navy, compared to just 8 U-boats. This numerical advantage would continue even if the British submarines would not make the lasting impact of their German counterparts. The Admiralty believed that the submarines were strictly defensive weapons, and that that would be their primary posture throughout the war. This was the German opinion before the war as well, but they would quickly adapt to their circumstances. The first German U-boat model was the U-1, which was constructed in 1906. It was not that much different than the models that the British were creating for the Royal Navy. They were pretty much the same size and pretty much the same in terms of capabilities. The one big difference between the two was the fuel, 
The Germans used kerosene, and the British used petrol. The kerosene had some drawbacks, but it was chosen by the Germans because it was more stable and safer. Both of the submarines were outfitted with electric motors and batteries that could generate up to 400 horsepower. Thinking about ships of the era utilizing electricity in this way seems weird to me. I know it's a bit silly, uh, I've talked about electricity many times over the last year, but it still seems that batteries, in my mind, were not in existence in 1914. This is a problem with my mind, especially when you consider the fact that rechargeable batteries were created way back in the 1850s. These batteries, just like the batteries of 1914, and even in today in our vehicles, used a lead-acid concoction to store the electrical power, and they could be recharged over and over again, with only very minimal loss of capacity. In the early days of U-boats, after 1906, new submarines were constantly achieving new feats of endurance. In 1908, the U-1 completed the 600-mile trip from Heligoland to Kiel, Germany through the Denmark Strait, and in 1910, the U-3 and the U-4 proved their seaworthiness when they maintained a speed of 12 knots on the surface while in the teeth of a storm at sea. The U-3 and the U-4 were also unique because they were the first U-boats to mount retractable guns on the hull. These guns were to be used during commerce raiding, since it was seen as wasteful to use torpedoes. A milestone moment occurred in 1912, when during the yearly naval maneuvers, a small number of U-boats outscored a surface fleet of destroyers. The next year, just one U-boat was able to sink three battleships during the exercises, a feat that no other vessel of the German Navy could have achieved. 1913 was important for another reason as well, because it saw the introduction of diesel engines into the U-boats. Diesel engines would be the only engine used during World War II-era submarines, and they are still used to this day for smaller submarines around the world. With the diesel engines, the U-boats were able to complete voyages of up to 5,000 miles, while also maintaining speeds of around 10 knots. This meant that they would be able to travel into the North Sea, stay on patrol for some time, and then come back without ever having to refuel. While there would be drastic improvements over the years, by the time the war started, the submarines in use would not have looked greatly out of place 30 years later during the Second World War. All of the big pieces were in place. Diesel engines, rechargeable batteries, torpedoes, deck guns, wireless radios, hydrophones, all of these were already here. While the U-boats had all of the pieces of later years, what they did not have was the strategy. This is something that would have to be developed on the fly once the war had started. Before the war, many traditionalists in the German Navy had a low opinion of the new U-boats, and this included the Kaiser. He would not even inspect the U-boat fleet before June 1914, and such an inspection was a critical sign of acceptance as part of the German Navy. Once the war started, the U-boats would have to prove their effectiveness, and they would do so early and often. In the month before the war started, and especially those last few days when war was all but guaranteed, there was a lot of work to get the U-boats ready to go and ready to go to war. Johann Spice, who served as first officer aboard the U-9, would say this of these final preparations. Quote, the practice and maneuvers of the U-boats now increased to feverish intensity. The dark shadow of war was drawing ever closer, ready to engulf us, and we could not tell how soon those mimic battle operations of diving and torpedoing might become the real thing. 
a surprise attack by the British fleet was expected hourly. End quote. As with other industries, U-boat production was drastically increased when war was declared, and this increase in submarine numbers also included new and better technologies to go along with it. This meant that the new boats were slightly larger and could travel further. Once the German army advanced into Belgium and France, they began utilizing ports to base U-boats from, foreshadowing the use of many French ports during the Second World War. These bases were useful for smaller series of submarines, boats that were specifically designed for coastal work, like, say, around the British coastline. They were just under 100 feet long, and they had just two torpedo tubes to use, but they were stealthy and deadly enough for their job. Another new type was created that was designated UC. This type was created to lay mines. It carried 12 mines and 6 tubes that could quickly set up a minefield anywhere around the southern British Isles. You may remember the problems that the Royal Navy had with minefields laid down by submarines during the Gallipoli Campaign, and in the seas around Europe, they were just as much of a problem. When the war started, the larger U-boats were tasked with probing out into the North Sea to learn where the British blockade was set up, what ships were being used for it, and how strong they were. As the U-boats moved further and further out into the North Sea, and eventually into the Atlantic, they began to run into a serious problem patrol times. To reach distant patrol areas, it could mean up to a week of travel time, one way. When they could only be out of port for about three weeks, this was a serious problem. With just a week on patrol per U-boat, and only about 20 U-boats active during the first months of the war, and given the necessary downtime for repairs and resupply, there could only be a few U-boats on patrol at the same time. While this was acceptable in 1914, when the primary targets of the U-boats were Royal Navy ships, when the goal would shift to blockade, it would be a serious problem. The bases in Belgium helped by cutting several days off of the transit time, but it was a problem that the Germans never fully solved. The British, though, would take the Belgian bases as a grave threat and would attempt to damage them through an air raid on January the 23rd. This would not be the last raid on the ports, not even close, and they would grow in both size and frequency. On February the 12th, 34 aircraft would be used. On February the 16th, 48, and it just went up from there. While the air raids were large undertakings by the British, they were not the only way they were seeking to eliminate the U-boat threat, and World War I would see some of the first large-scale work on effective submarine countermeasures. In his book, To End All Wars, Adam Hochschild would say this about the problem that the U-boats posed for the Royal Navy. Quote, the mighty guns of the behemoth dreadnoughts that Britain had invested so many billions in building, and their tens of thousands of sailors, were useless against the real naval threat from Germany, which turned out to be a weapon that neither side had previously paid much attention to, the submarine. End quote. Submarines were a whole new type of challenge for the Royal Navy to deal with, and nobody had any experience trying to counter them on a large scale. Even recent wars, and ones that were primarily fought at sea like the Russo-Japanese War, happened too early for submarines to make a real impact. There was also a fundamental misunderstanding on all sides on just how impactful submarines would be. The British had more than enough submarines themselves that they, if they had put their minds to it before the war, they could have developed a method of defeating them. The greatest navy in the world, full of smart people, 
just never really considered what they would do when submarines started hunting down warships and merchantmen on a large scale in the open ocean. Once the war started, they were forced to start at square one, and all kinds of things started showing up on the drawing boards of the Admiralty offices. Depth charges were still in the future, but the first attempts involved nets, mines, deck guns, and maybe the oldest military tactic in the book, good old-fashioned ramming. The use of nets, often hauled by fishing trawlers, was a tactic that was used quite often early in the war, often in the English Channel where there was a bottleneck. It was not the most effective method, but it did manage to capture at least one U-boat that got tangled up in the netting and had to surface. None of the methods mentioned above were very successful, and so the British soon resorted to what I'm going to refer to as ungentlemanly tactics. It all started when the U-boats started going after the British fishing fleet in the North Sea. They used completely legal prize rules, and the attacks resulted in very few civilian casualties. The British decided to take advantage of the situation by taking two fishing ships and replacing the civilian crews with highly trained Navy sailors. The fishing trawlers were then outfitted with the ability to tow a British submarine behind them, so that when the U-boat surfaced to capture the ships and spare the crew, the submarine would be cut loose and would move into the attack. Another variation of this tactic did away with the complicated towing setup, and instead just mounted a bunch of hidden deck guns on the fake fishing ships. When the U-boat would surface to capture the ships, the British would simply open fire, using the rules of the seas against the Germans. This tactic would not be restricted just to fishing ships either, and would also be used by larger merchant ships. The merchant ships added another layer of trickery as well. Not only were their guns concealed on the ships, not only were their Royal Navy sailors on board, but the ships would also fly the flag of neutral countries. The Germans were forbidden from sinking neutral ships without first searching them for military cargo, so they would surface to search the ship and quickly come under fire from said ship. The ship would first raise the British flag to replace the neutral one that it had been showing, and this was for diplomatic reasons. It was very important that ships never actually fire shots while a neutral flag was still showing. Now, even with all of this trickery, the U-boats were still a problem especially when they started shooting torpedoes at ships without first surfacing to warn them. Because of this, the best weapon against U-boats was not even a weapon at all, but instead it came from the men of Room 40. The U-boats had wireless transmitters and used it to report kills, give status reports, get orders, and to announce when they were coming back to port. With the intercepts that Room 40 was able to decrypt, the U-boats could often be identified to reasonably small areas of ocean, and it also meant that the British could read their orders to know exactly where they were going. This advanced knowledge helped the British route shipping around these known patrol areas. There would be better countermeasures later in the war, but they wouldn't really arrive until the 1917. So for the first few years, often the best defense was the oldest defense of all, simply running away. As I mentioned earlier, the first task of the U-boats when the war started was to scout out the British fleet in the North Sea. This task began at dawn on August the 6th, when 10 U-boats left port to begin their first hunting trip of the war. Unfortunately for the Germans, this particular trip would not be very successful, 
with eight boats turning around and coming home after reaching the Orkney Islands, having not found anything in their two-day voyage. One of the other U-boats hit a mine and sank instantly without any survivors. The last U-boat, U-15, actually managed to find some British warships. This was almost certainly the first time any of the German sailors had participated in a real torpedo attack, and it was at least somewhat understandable that they missed their first shots. The men of the U-15 were lucky on that day, though, because when reports came in from the other ships about a possible torpedo attack in the water, the British flag officer dismissed them. The reason for this dismissal was that the flag officer found it to be completely unbelievable that submarines would be acting so far from their bases. The British ships were about 400 miles from the nearest German port, which makes this belief by the flag officer quite weird. The British knew that the U-boats could travel thousands of miles. The British themselves had submarines that could travel thousands of miles as well, so 400 miles isn't really that much of a hop. Because of this dismissal, the U-15 just kept following the British ships for the rest of August the 9th, and through the night and into the next morning. Unfortunately for the U-15, they would not be quite as lucky on August the 10th. The light cruiser Birmingham spotted them early in the morning while the submarine was near the surface, and the captain of the Birmingham quickly moved into ramming position. When the cruiser hit the U-15, it hit at an angle and glanced off without causing any noticeable damage. After the ramming attempt, the U-15 stayed on the surface instead of submerging. Nobody seems to really be sure why this happened. It's possible that there was damage caused in the first ramming attempt that prevented the diving maneuver from being completed. Regardless of the reason why, the cruiser turned again and rammed again, this time hitting the submarine squarely amidship and slicing it in half, quickly sending all of the men aboard down to the bottom of the sea. When the captain of the Birmingham reported the sinking to the main fleet, they did not believe the report. The belief was, once again, that the submarines wouldn't be 450 miles from the nearest German port where the Birmingham was reporting them. It was probably quite the sad day on board the Birmingham when they weren't given official credit for the kill. With the sinking of the U-15, the first U-boat sortie of the war came to an end. After this first attempt, the Germans would switch tactics, and instead of sending out a bunch of subs at once against a target that they might not be able to find, they just sent them out in ones or twos. This would be the most profitable way to use their submarine strength, as the Germans would soon find out. Besides the simple fact that the U-boats could search more open ocean when they were in smaller groups, it also made it seem to the British that the U-boats were everywhere. Everybody started seeing periscopes everywhere along the British coastline. They were causing U-boat fever, and this psychological effect was almost more impactful than the torpedoes in the tubes. The British fleet would waste a lot of time investigating these sightings. They were obligated to, and most of them were not even real. Almost a month later, on September the 3rd, the imagined threat of the U-boat started to become a very real threat for the Royal Navy. It was on this day that the U-21 sat recharging its batteries when the British light cruiser, the Pathfinder, was spotted. The U-21 submerged and began to stalk the ship. It was not long before the U-21 was in firing position, and exactly one torpedo was fired at the Pathfinder. The torpedo would run true, and it would hit the Pathfinder just behind the bridge. 
This may not have been enough to sink the ship, except that it ignited the magazine, which caused a huge explosion. It took only four minutes for the cruiser to sink, with only 259 survivors able to abandon the ship in time. The sinking of the Pathfinder was the first real success for the U-boats during the war. It was not long before U-boat captains started to become national heroes, similar to air aces would be several years later. And the first real U-boat hero of the war began his legacy when Otto Wendigan, the captain of the U-9, approached three armored cruisers in the North Sea. Wendigan shot all six of the torpedoes that he had in his tubes and was able to sink all three cruisers for a grand total of 36,000 tons put under the sea. When he got back to port, Wendigan would receive the Iron Cross, first and second class, and all of the seamen aboard the U-9 would receive the Iron Cross second class. After the three armored cruisers were sunk by Wendigan, the Royal Navy started taking everything way more seriously. The British had poured a lot of time and money into those ships, and they were all gone in the blink of an eye, and this would cause all of the British admirals and captains to be far more cautious, some might say too cautious, about the submarine threat. This overcautiousness was seen in the early retreat from the British ships at the Battle of Dogger Bank that we talked about several episodes ago. The U-boats, on the other hand, were emboldened by the successes of the U-9 and the U-21 and would continue to improve their abilities at finding and sinking British ships. The threat to the Royal Navy, both real and imagined, became so great that it caused Admiral Jellicoe, the commander of the Grand Fleet, to move all of his ships from the normal base at Scapa Flow to bases in Northern Ireland due to the fact that the British had completely neglected to erect any form of anti-submarine defenses at Scapa Flow, which has always been planned as their primary fleet base. So if you think about it, 20 small U-boats had caused the most powerful fleet in the world that the world had ever seen to retreat from its primary base, which was one hell of an accomplishment. Even with this small victory achieved, the war was dragging into October and November, and it was becoming apparent that the German army wasn't going to win the war in 1914, and in the minds of the German navy, they began to wonder how the U-moats may be put to better use. Maybe they could find ships that were even easier prey than the Royal Navy warships. Next episode will be full of that discussion. But before we get there, I just wanted to discuss a quick aside about submarine action in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean was never going to be the primary theater for the submarine war, but there was actually quite a bit of action and some interesting events that occurred in the area. The British would focus almost all of their anti-submarine efforts in the waters around the home islands, and until the very end of the war, this would put very little emphasis on hunting down U-boats in the Mediterranean Sea. It was also a safer hunting ground for the U-boats, because there was very little neutral shipping moving through the sea, so when unrestricted warfare did begin, the Med proved to be very uncontroversial hunting grounds, unlike the North Sea and the Atlantic. These two facts meant that the U-boats in the Mediterranean went on a hunting frenzy for most of the war, and many of Germany's highest-scoring U-boat captains were based there. Another fact that I found interesting was what happened when Italy entered the war. Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary in 1915, but not Germany. They wouldn't declare war on Germany until 1916, but the Germans wanted to base U-boats out of Austrian ports to help hunt down Italian shipping. 
To accomplish this, while still remaining technically out of the fighting, they would register U-boats sent to Austria in the Austrian Navy, with all of the paperwork done completely officially. However, the U-boats would keep their entire German crew, including their German captain, with the addition of a single crewman, an Austrian, to act as the captain in case it was required. So in all official documents and communications, the U-boats were treated as Austrian under the command of their Austrian captain, even though they were not. And in some cases, this really throws off historical statistics on who sunk what during the war. Unless the researcher is paying attention, it's easily to misattribute kills. I just thought that these two facts were interesting, and this seemed like the time to share them, since I doubt they will find their way into another episode for a while. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next episode. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.